Good morning again. Man, what an honor it is for me to, I, I know I say it every week, but to be able to, to stand in front of you guys and, and open up the Bible, it's a joy. It's a joy of mine. And if you have Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We are going to be in the book of Acts. So if you have your own Bible, or if you want to grab one of the Black Pew Bibles that's sitting around the room, or your phone, or whatever you got, go to the book of Acts, starting in chapter 2, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 42 of chapter 2. That's page 911, if you're using one of those Black ESV Pew Bibles. Now, many of you know that on Sunday mornings as a church, over the last few weeks, we've been walking through a church series called The Church, where we're we're simply trying to identify what are the core things that make Carson Valley Bible Church, Carson Valley Bible Church. What are the core characteristics that we want to make sure that anybody who walks through these doors on Sunday morning experiences, that they can see that this is something that we value, this is something that we're committed to, this is something that we're going to be doing for as long as God has us here, which I praise for a long, long time. And so I thought it was important to go through what is the church? What is Carson Valley Bible Church? What is the church called to be? What is the church called to do? What is the church called in general? Because I think when you look at the the universal church or the big capital C church, which we value very immensely, that's important. But you show what you actually believe about the universal church, all Christians everywhere, by how you interact with the local church, that lower C church. Is how do you interact with the local church? Because that will tell me everything in which I know that you actually believe about the big C church. And so what we do here on Sundays, I think, demonstrates a lot of what we actually believe. What we actually believe about God, what we actually believe about the Bible, what we actually believe the church is called to do. In the very first week, I hopefully established that we as a church, we are called to build our foundation upon the Word of God, right? So this book, right, these 66 books that make up the Holy Bible... We believe that these are inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. And so if we believe that God has actually written a book, then it's going to change everything about us. And if we believe that God has actually written a book, we should look at what does he say about the church. And that's what we're doing. And I think that God has given us everything we need to know as a church to to properly understand and worship him as a church family. Then week two... I talked about, okay, what is the church called to do with the word of God? And that is to preach it, right? To sing it, to pray it. That everything in which we do stems from the word of God, but it's a message to be proclaimed. So we talked about the role of preaching in the local church. It's one of the greatest things that we could ever do is preach in a church. And not just preach anything, right? To preach the gospel, the good news, the evangelion of what God has come to do. And in case you are not familiar with the gospel, or that seems like a strange word, it literally means good news. It means the good news that Jesus came and lived the life that I could not live, the life that you could not live, but also died the death that we deserved, that we deserved. And because he was fully God, his atonement, his death as a substitution became the very means in which we now can actually be justified with God. That when God the Father looks down at Jesus on the cross, he was bearing his, our sins in our place. And that Jesus was actually giving us 
his righteousness. That's the good news. That's why we follow, why we worship Jesus above all. Because he's the only one that saved us. He's the only one that's died for us. And then last week, I looked at the topic of biblical leadership. Biblical leadership. That God in his wonderful design, I think, that has given two main leadership roles within a church. One of pastor elder, the second of deacon. Two offices that God has given the church uh, so it could be unified in its mission, right? It could have a, a good understanding of what it's called to do and called to be. And that he has called the offices of elder, pastor, and deacon to kind of lead that charge, to lead that charge. But as I mentioned last week, and I'm going to expand upon today, I think there's one other incredible, critical office in every local church. And that is one of membership. One of membership. Of members of a local church. And here's what I mean by members. I mean members who are, are individuals who are completely and formally committed to that group of people. To a certain group of people saying, this is the group of people that I'm going to follow Jesus with. This is the group of people I'm going to help other people follow Jesus with. So membership is one of the greatest gifts I think that God has given this church. A fi- right? A family of individuals who make up a family of God. Membership. And here's the thing, church, is I don't, I don't know if you, can, if you can fully love Jesus and hate his bride, which is the church. What the Bible calls the church. Now, I think we all uh, would probably agree with that when we think about it in that language, right? You can't come up to me and say, Luke, I I like you. I want to hang out with you. I want to be a part of your life, but I want nothing to do with Gina. I want nothing to do with your bride. We would not be hanging out. You you realize that. We would not be on good terms. There would be some serious discussion of, you you can't say that you want to be around me and, and, and hate something that's so important to me. And not want to be around something that's so important to me. And you don't understand me at all. That's why Jesus calls the church his bride. And so this idea, though, this concept of then being committed to Jesus and also being committed to the things that Jesus was committed to, like all of what we do, stems from the word of God, right? It stems from, does the Bible actually teach membership in a local church, right? That's the, that's the critical question that we're trying to answer. And I, and I hope that we can. And I want to show you today is I think that even in the earliest days of the church, of the New Testament church, and when I say the earliest days, I'm talking like day one of the early church, we see the concept of church membership formed and fortified for every Christian to be a part of. I think it allows us to now uh, just reflect of who God is and what he's done. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. But as always, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to pray uh, before I actually read the word of God. I'm going to pray for our kids. And I would ask that as I'm doing that, that maybe you just pray for me and then we'll get going. So let's do that now. Well, Father, I thank you uh, for another moment to be able to open up your word. I'm going to pray that maybe, maybe this morning you would just allow each uh, man and woman in this building to be able to see clearly, Lord, what you have called them to be in you. God, that that you would give them the grace of of illumination, maybe just to be able to see in the text 
uh, what you so profoundly want every single Christian to know and believe and experience when it comes to belonging to a church. God, I also pray for our kiddos. I pray for our teachers. God, as as they're walking through these promises of God, and even this morning as they're walking through of of one of the scariest times in a man named Abraham's life where he was called to sacrifice his son. And Abraham went up the mountain, not knowing what that would look like, but he went along trusting God, and God provided a substitute, a picture of what we have in Christ. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time we have. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you... If you can, go ahead and follow along with me. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It should be on the screens as well. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We'll stop there. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Lord. Man, I almost grabbed the baby bottle to drink from. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been bad. All right. So church, in case you're not familiar with the passage that we just read, what, ha- what the book of Acts is, is just, it's, a, it's a story of how the church got started, how the, the New Testament church got started, how the church formed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the apostles are gathered together and they are praying about, okay, how do we take what Jesus has done, what he has told us to do, and then take it to the ends of the world? And they're thinking about, okay, how do we start this? How do we start this? And Peter, who was was always quick to speak, but now being filled with the Holy Spirit, decides, you know what? I need to preach to Jerusalem. I need to tell them, I need to proclaim to them what Jesus has done and why that matters for them. And so the book of Acts, the first chapter, really chapter 2, most of it is actually basically the first Christian sermon. The first time where Jesus is heralded explicitly from a pulpit. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because it shows us the power that is in preaching. Because if you have your Bibles, I don't have this on the screen, but you could jump up to verse 41. And you can see that after he's preaching this sermon, what happens? It says that 3,000 people were saved. They were cut to the heart. 3,000 people in one sermon. We're cut to the heart. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But what I want to focus on is not that 3,000 people got saved, but what did those 3,000 people do once they were saved? What did they, what happened in their life? What happened in their, in their patterns uh, to reflect the very salvation that they just experienced? And I think that's what we see in verses 42 through 47. So look at verse 42 with me. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So in the eyes of the Bible, to be a Christian, to demonstrate your faith is to be committed or devoted to something, to something. Now here at 
Carson Valley Bible Church, I like to use the language that every member here is committed to gospel doctrine and also gospel culture. I think that's what we see in these verses. Gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine. And gospel culture. And I think you see this, I think primarily through formal church membership. And here's why I want to show you that. Is because, and here, here's just is my, my honest take. I think, in, especially in this valley, you can call yourself a Christian and not be devoted to anything or anyone else besides yourself. Besides yourself. And it is a very, uh, I guess, just understood and often well-accepted identity just to, your, your walk with Christ is simply just you and Jesus. It's essentially a lifelong quiet time. That's, that's what your Christian walk is. Now, hear me on this. I'm not against quiet times. You know, you know getting with your Bible, you know, getting with a journal, praying, recording. I'm all for that. But that does not sum up the entire Christian life. I think there's devotion to God, but there's also, what, devotion to the fellowship, to one another. And I think the Bible speak, uh, speaks of this. It's not just the quiet time that we're trying to achieve in our Christian lives. Because to be a, a, a secret Christian or to be a Christian that isn't connected with any other Christians is really never seen in the New Testament. You won't find that. And because God has created us for a community, has created us for a people to be devoted to. And so in the first century, and I think, honestly, in most of the world today, to be call yourself a Christian or to be saved, to understand that you've been saved by Christ is to wholeheartedly transform your deepest commitments to your kinship and even your social ties. That when you become a Christian, it is evident to those who know you because your priorities change. Your priorities change in what you value the most. What you value the most. Uh, furthermore, I think even the New Testament, who's it written to, church? It's written to churches or individuals who are pastoring churches or, or people who are suffering because of their faith, that they're being open and vocal with their faith. See, their faith was not private. They had a deep commitment to their brothers and sisters in faith, and it was coming out over and over again in the New Testament. I think it's why we're even standing here today, right? Thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, thousands of years later in human history, we're standing, or I'm standing, you're sitting, here in Minden, Nevada, opening up and hearing about the Word of God, hearing about what Christ has done. That has only happened because a group of people have been committed to gospel doctrine and gospel culture along the way. And I think this is important for us because every generation, every church has to heed the call of what are they going to be about. Are they going to be one of the faithful links of a long chain of church planting and disciple making that maybe my grandkids, great grandkids can grow up hearing about the gospel of Jesus because of this group of people was committed to gospel doctrine and gospel culture? I hope so. I pray so. Every generation, every church has to make a decision what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to commit myself to the mission of God? And where is that mission of God primarily taking place at? Within the local church. Within the local church. And I want to look at that a little bit more closely. So go back to verse 42 again. 
It says they were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. This is gospel doctrine. Now remember, at this time, they did not have a, a Bible that they could simply uh, read and grow from. Right? The Bible was still being penned. Right? It was very hard to get a hold of any of the different copies or parchments that they had. So they were devoted, though, to the apostles' teaching, to hearing and gathering so they could learn the truth of the Bible. They could learn the good doctrine. They could learn the beauty that God has come, that God has created everything, that God has sent Christ to die in our place. That beauty of sound doctrine was important for the early church, and they were committed to learning about that, and so should we. Right? We are committed to continually learning about God, learning about what he has done, in order so we could rightly worship him. I don't want to worship, I don't want to give my life to a God that I don't know. I want to give my life to a God who has revealed himself in the word of God. And I can learn about him and what he has done in and through the good news of the gospel. And I want to commit myself to that just like the early church did. And so one of the primary ways of a healthy church membership is being committed to gospel doctrine. Being committed to knowing the God in whom you worship. Are we just trying to figure out why do Christians do what they do? That's an important question to ask. So the beauty of gospel doctrine is essential to the life of a believer. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. I've, I've said this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. He says this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, when it comes into, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's not hyperbole. What you think about God, what comes into your mind when someone says the word God or when someone says the word Jesus is the most important thing about you because it will lead to everything else in your life. I can assure you of that. It will undeniably lead to why you do everything in which you do in life. So I think Tozer's right. So to be a member of a church is, I think, being committed to learning and growing what is true about God. What is true about God. But church is not a seminary lecture. Right? It's not a seminary lecture. I've gone to seminary. Right? I've been there. I've done that. I want to go back again, honestly. I want to continue in my education. But here's the thing I know, is that seminary or a theological lecture is not church. It is not church. It, it is helpful knowledge, but it is not a replacement for Sunday morning. It is not a replacement for gathering with believers and understanding where they're at. It is not a replacement for a committing to one another. I had classmates. I have no idea what they're doing right now. But I should know what's going on in this church. I should know what's going on in your guys' life if I'm your pastor. And I think we see that. Look at verse 42 again. It says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, but also what? The fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So this new group of Christians is not only committed to learning and growing in their faith, but also committed to learning and growing in their knowledge of one another. And they're doing that by breaking bread and prayers. That's even the language of taking the Lord's Supper together, right? That, that, that great act that the church specifically has been given the gift of doing with one another. It says they're committed to the fellowship. 
The Greek word is there, it's koinonia. It's a group of people coming alongside for mutual submission, mutual accountability, mutual joy within one another. So this church, the church here in Acts 2, this is not just in theory, right? This is in practicality, that this church is committed to a specific group of people. And they are doing that by praying, learning, growing, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And here's why I think this points to the evidence of formal church membership. Because in the first century, right, this church, there was no other church to belong to, right? This is, this is the first church. So everybody knew who was a part of that church. There wasn't different spots to go and do this at. But here's the, the question that we have to ask ourselves. Is that the same today? I don't think it is, right? We, in this valley, we have a number of, of good, godly churches that are striving to, to do the very things I think that we're striving to do as well. And so I think it's important and even necessary, I think, for us to formalize, okay, which group of Christians am I going to be committed to? Which group of Christians am I going to say I'm going to do Acts 2 with? I'm going to be devoted to learning with them and growing with them and taking the Lord's Supper with them. Who is that going to be? Because if we didn't have church membership, then essentially what we're saying is then you should be doing this with every Christian in this valley, which would be absurd, right? You cannot do that with every Christian in this valley. And so I think God in his mercy, his mercy, he has given us membership in a local church to identify with a group of people saying, hey, you are my family. You are the people I'm going to be doing this with. You are the people I'm going to be learning gospel doctrine with. You are the people I'm going to be trying to experience gospel culture with. So I think it points to just the necessity of formal church membership. Formal church membership. And furthermore, I think, what, how does the Bible describe the church? Sometimes it talks about it as being the household of God, right? You probably have heard people say that. Or maybe you have been reading in your New Testament lately, and because it doesn't really matter where you find yourself in the New Testament, every single New Testament author, when he's referring to Christians, he often will use the language of either brothers or sisters in the faith, right? That familial language. Because what are the authors trying to get at? When you belong to a people, it's not just like a country club membership where you just pay your dues and you show up when you want, as long as it's benefiting you in some ways. No, a church is actually a family, a family. That's where you refer to yourself as brothers or sisters. And I think any good, healthy family, you know who's in the family, right? You know who's your brother or sister. Because how in the world are you supposed to care for them or do any of the one another's that we see in Scripture if you actually don't even know who they are? But we do know who they are. That's what God has given us through church membership to do. But hear me on this. Ascribing or committing to a church in particular is not like a begrudging submission. Like myself or Ken or Justin, no one's going to hold your hand to a piece of paper and say, hey, sign here. Like we're going we're gonna to submit you to, you know, commit to something that you're not committed to. We're not, we're not against that, or we are against that completely. But what we want and we desire is for you to long and desire yourself to want to commit to a group of people. Because what could happen? 
What could happen? Look at verse 43. What could happen when a group of people commits in this way to this gospel culture? It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through them. So there is a sense of oneness, a sense of oneness that can come upon people when they are committed to one another. You could see maybe prayers being answered. Right? You, could, you could see struggles being confessed for the first time, maybe. You could see weight, the weight of guilt and condemnation of sin be lifted from someone's shoulders when they're trusting in Christ because in Christ there is no condemnation. You can experience that. And when you do, if you haven't already, I can assure you, it's like awe is coming upon your soul. When you get to see the word of God, you get to see the family of God experience the very things of God, like forgiveness and salvation and oneness can come upon your soul. And I believe that when you're committed to those things, it will monumentally change everything about you. Monumentally change everything about you. Think you begin to serve each other in radical ways. In radical ways, you start giving to one another. You start being available to one another. And you know why? It's because you no longer are trying to get your identity from the things of this world or from that person. And now they're actually free just to be your brother or sister of the faith. That you're not trying to use them to get what you want. I don't know if you know this, but we all have a tendency to use people to get what we want. But here's the beauty of gospel culture. It shatters that. That we no longer have to use people to get what we want. But because we already have everything in Christ, we can actually, maybe for the first time, be open and honest and serve people with no agenda. No agenda attached. That's gospel culture, church. I think that's an oddness. And you start to, and here's some evidence of that. You start to leverage your life, your skills, your money, possessions, maybe your gifts for the betterment of one another. No strings attached. That's gospel culture. That's what I want here. It's just a group of people who are sold out to learn and grow in Christ and help others do the same. It's an embodiment of the truth of the gospel. Now, this serving one another, it can be big, it could be small. Look at verse 45. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we're, we're saying that we have to sell all our possessions and move into a giant um, compound that has not gone well for anybody who's ever tried that. You can have your own things. You, your money doesn't 100% have to go to the church. That's not what this verse is saying. Okay? It's not saying that in order to rightly worship God, you also have to be poor. Okay? Some people have taken this, this verse uh, way too far. But what I think this verse is pointing to, the reality and principle is that they had oneness with one another. Right? That they cared about one another so much that they were actually willing to sacrifice uh, some things that in our world, as true as it was then as it is now, that it would be absurd and even radical to think that somebody would give towards one another in this way. There's a oneness that happens with gospel culture. Let me give you a small example of this. About eight years ago, Gene uh, and I were, we were newlyweds. We were in Reno. Uh, we were members of, of a church up there called Living Stones. 
And at this time, Gene and I were, were leading a community group, which is like a Bible study, but more than that, uh, on the campus of UNR. It was full of a bunch of college students, 18 and 20-year-olds. At this point, I had just started seminary. So I was, uh, my first seminary, my first master's that I went to was in Seattle. So I was traveling up to Seattle once a month to attend classes, uh, attend lectures, and then, and then I would do a lot of the work of, of reading and homework back at home. And this was a big move for me personally uh, to be making this trip up to Seattle. It was very costly financially. And Gene and I did not have that much money to begin with. We were basically using every, every ounce of money that I had from working for the state to fund this education, to fund, hopefully, for me to pursue a calling that I believe I had to become a pastor. So I'm, I'm doing this program, and we're leading this community group. And then one night, after, after group, we came home. We came home from UNR, and we found that our house had been broken into. Been broken into, been burglarized. Now, they didn't get away uh, with a whole lot uh, as far as valuable things. Part of that was because we didn't have valuable things to get away with. The second part, I think, is because in our little, like, 600-square-foot home, we also had a St. Bernard um, who, like, basically took up the length of the living room. And, and I don't know what, what he did in this moment, but I think he might have saved a few things of ours. But one of the things, though, that whoever broke into the house did get away with was my laptop. My laptop. Now, I know, you know, some of you are saying, yeah, that's, that's unnecessary. I've never had a laptop in my life. Praise God. Don't go down that road if you don't need to. But for me, at this moment in my life, this laptop was incredibly important for me for my schooling. Because all of my homework and all my classes were online. All, all of the, the big things that I had to submit, I had to do through the internet. And my only source of doing that was through this computer. So I was honestly, pretty devastated, not knowing, okay, how in the world am I going to be able to not only buy a new commute, uh, computer, but also continue with this program? Because to buy a $1,000 computer was, like, might have been like 50% of our annual income at this point. That's an exaggeration. It was like 25%. But word got out to my community group. Word got out to my community group. Remember, this is a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds. And within 24 hours, church, within 24 hours, they came by to my house and presented me with a new MacBook. Said, hey, we heard what happened. We know it's important to you. We got everybody together. We pooled all our money. We bought you a new MacBook. And I was floored. I was floored by that generosity. Not because I was super excited just to have a new computer, but I was more excited because what they did in that moment was the very thing which we see here in Acts 2 is that they were experiencing and showcasing to me their understanding of the gospel. That they had roots in the gospel so much that they were willing to give up something that was so precious to them to serve a guy like me. No strings attached. No strings attached. And it absolutely floored me. I still use that laptop to this day. I still write sermons on it, church. And every time I do, I think about those believers who wanted to model to me of their commitment to one another. And by God's grace, I was a part of that group. I was part of that group. This was gospel culture. I'm sure, you know, you guys probably have your own stories of that. Where a church family was not, was actual, an actual family to you. 
That the people in this room was not just some people that you randomly hung out with for a few hours on Sunday morning, but they were the people that were there for you when things were good, they were celebrating with you, they were there when things were bad, right? Unforeseen death, unforeseen instances, unforeseen tragedy, or maybe just things just weren't going well, it was just ugly. The church is called to be there in all of those moments when we have a right understanding of who our God is and what we get from Him and we don't have to get it from each other, but we can serve one another in gospel culture. Now, this type of culture, though, I'll be honest, it, does, it usually does not develop overnight. It usually does not develop overnight. But there's some ways that I think God has given us to develop that type of culture. Look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This is the ongoing commitment to gospel culture. The ongoing commitment to one another. This ongoing commitment to Sundays. This ongoing commitment to your groups, to your church. And as the result, what's the result? Growth. Growth. Day by day. Day by day they were attending, breaking bread in their homes. This is not just a Sunday thing. But this is a beautiful thing that can happen when a group of people are committed to one another. Now, Ray Ortland, he's one of my favorite pastors from afar. He says this all the time in reference, uh, basically a little formula that he has uh, coined to describe some gospel culture. of How can you get there? This day-by-day language. Look at what he says here. I think we have a, yeah, there you go. He says this. He says, the gospel... So the truth about, about who God is, what he's done, so plus safety, mean gospel culture, or we all know that we're sinners in need of a Savior, plus time equals church growth, equals a church where anyone can grow. Anyone can grow. That there is, there's no set of, this is how you have to be in order to be a part of this culture. Or this is what you have to do, or this is what you have to know in order to belong here. In truth, this is, this is all, all we ask. Try to understand the gospel. Believe that this is a safe place that you can do that at. You can ask questions, right? You can, you can stumble. You can confess your sin. You can try to figure out what is God calling you to do, that safety. And also time, because we know that doesn't come easy, right? It doesn't come easy to open yourself up to a group of people and commit yourself to a people. It takes time. And I think, I think what, he, what Ray Ortland says is very true. It's the gospel plus safety plus time equals a church where anyone can grow, where anyone can commit to, where anyone can be devoted to, committed to following Jesus and helping others do the same. And I think we need each other in that. We need each other in that. Because there's probably two groups of people in this room today. The first one is probably a group of people who needs to learn maybe once again what it looks like, maybe for the first time, what it looks like to follow Jesus. What it actually looks like to follow Jesus. I think the year 2020 has done far more damage or has far more of an impact than we care to recognize or even admit in the way that we interact with one another. I'm sure you guys still experience this. That there's still a tendency when people look at each other, they're not looking like they're looking at another image bearer, but they're looking at someone who's almost like a, a, a chemical warfare agent. 
right? That, that affects you, right? That affects you. When you feel like people are looking at you like you're going to hurt them all the time. So I think there's an element, even if you're a Christian, that you might be in a season where you need to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus again. The second group of people is by God's grace. He has been maturing you in this area of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And guess what? You're here to help other people learn how to follow Jesus, to pour yourself into those that maybe just need your help, need your encouragement, need your prayers, need to know that when push comes to shove, that they are in your corner. And they're saying, I'm praying for you. And they mean it. And they mean it. They're saying, hey, let's get together this week. Let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's get dinner. Hey, make sure we come to groups so we can catch up. We need those people too to encourage us. Because at the end of the day, what we are attempting to do is not individualistic. Like it's not all about you. What we do is for you. Church membership is for you, but it's not about you, right? It's about saying, I want to leverage my life under obedience to God and his word to the betterment of a specific group of people. So if you're kicking the tires on, you know, maybe this place, I, this is what I'm praying for, that, that maybe you would take that first step and, okay, what does it look like to devote yourself to a group of people? And maybe you're saying, I want to be this type of people. So do we. So do we. That's what we're giving our lives to. We haven't done it perfectly. Not at all. But we're, we're, we're hopefully moving in that direction. We're moving in that direction. Because one of the things that could happen is what verse 47 says. So after they're attending the temple day by day, they're, they're meeting each other in their homes, it says that they can praise God together. They can praise God together. They're praising God. Listen, your walk with Christ is absolutely personal. No doubt about that. But it is not private. It is not private. They are praising God together. They are rejoicing with those who rejoice. Right? They are crying with those who are crying. They're weeping with those who weep. That's what gospel culture is. That's what church membership is. It's a call to say, I got you. I got you. The book of Hebrews, he puts it this way. Whoever wrote Hebrews, it's a debate, in case you didn't know that. Um, Verse 23, chapter 10, should be on screen. That's what he says. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So God is saying in his word, That when we are together, that love, that good works, that encouragement bloom out. They bloom out. And in a world where everybody seems to be at each other's throats, what would it look like then to have a place like this where people can come together and say, hey, guess what? I got the same hope as you. I'm confessing the same hope in you. I got the same foundation as you. How can we figure this out? How can we help each other? How can we encourage each other? That's what praising God looks like together. And when you do this, guess what? Just not you or that group will experience it. Look at the end of verse 47. It said, having, praising God and having favor with all the people. All the people. 
It means that when a group of Christians commit to one another, it is going to spread outside of just that group of Christians are going to take notice of that. They're going to take notice of that. When a church is committed to one another, it will go beyond that group. So when somebody walks into this church that's maybe not a member not a, or just a guest that's visiting, is I, I pray that they would instantly see that this group of people is not a, a sinless, you know, holier-than-thou group of people, but this is a church filled with men and women, and women who cannot get over the grace of God. And that they are a group of people that are still struggling with the same issues that they're struggling with. Still have jobs that are, are stressing them out or they don't like. There are a group of people that are still wondering how they're going to pay certain bills. A group of people are still worried and wondering how their health is going to be. What kind of effect that will have on their family. The same issues that we all have. But this group of people, this church, the members of this church, we have a hope. We have a hope that transcends those things. A hope that we can call ourselves to. So when a guest comes into this church, what do I pray that we see or they see? Maybe it's like when we sing a song like Amazing Grace or even How Great Thou Art. We sing it like we actually believe it. Or when we baptize like we're going to do in a few weeks, we're going to rejoice and celebrate as much as the heavens do when someone publicly proclaims their faith. Or I think most, more importantly than all of that, that each member, when you walk through this door to this church, you believe that you need to be here and you need to hear the gospel more than anybody else in this room. That although you are here for the other people, you know that your soul needs to be here. What a gift that is. What a gift that is. What a culture that is. I don't know if you've ever experienced a culture where you feel like everybody else thinks that they got their act together besides me. I've been there. It's not fun. But I can tell you a different type of culture, and I pray it's happening here. Then when someone walks through the doors, they're saying, this group of people does not have their act together in a way that they're perfect. But it seems like they're holding on to something that's better than themselves, and we are. It's Christ. We're holding on to him. That's why we're calling you to him. And so when we look at a passage like Acts 2, this is not just, oh, that's, a, that's nice. That's the nice, you know, early church that didn't have all the problems that we have now. Or we can't do the things they did then because of contextual uh, gaps. No, I think what, what basically what Luke is describing here is the author of the book of Acts as a historian. He's describing what every church longs to be and every, what every membership in particular longs to look like in a local church. Now to close our time, let me just, I'm going to speak to just a few different types of people. First is, I want to speak to the members, the people that have formally committed to the membership here at Carson Valley Bible Church. I simply want you to remember that what you are doing has incredible significance to who we are as a church. Your membership is not just about you. Your membership is about us. Your membership is about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So remember the commitment that you made to your God and to the members of this church, to walk alongside them, to encourage them, to break bread with them, to pray with them. And I, and I say, let's let that awe of God come raining down on us. 
another, another uh, group of people that's probably here is those who are Christians, but maybe not formal members or have never been formal members of a church. I want to encourage you, you, and you're welcome to come here for as long as you want without becoming a member, but I want to encourage you to become a member because I want you to be able to experience the things that come with being completely devoted to a group of people. Now, this, that might not be this church. We're okay with that. We want you to be a part of a church where you're saying, I'm all the way in. If that's not here, uh, you know, there's, there's other good spots. I'd be happy to recommend maybe something that's better. I'm not in competition with any church. I, I simply want to be faithful to what this church is called to do and what the people that have committed to this church be. But I want to encourage you to maybe attend a membership class when they come up. Learn more about who we are as a church. Learn more about that gospel doctrine and that gospel culture, how we believe that those things actually play out on a day-to-day basis. I think that you're, commi- you're being called to being committed to something. And go for it. Go for it. Lastly, if you're not a Christian, how, how does any of this impact you? What in the world does church membership have to do with you? Well, in some ways, not a whole lot. But in some ways, I think it points to something that you need to know. Because the only reason why anyone is a church member is because God has done something in their life. That at some point in their life, they have recognized that Jesus is who he said he was and is. Because here's the truth. No no church can save you. No church can can atone for your sins. No church can be the intermediary between you and a holy and righteous God. But Jesus can. So your first step is not to join a church. Your first step is to understand and believe in Christ. To see what he has done. To believe in what what he has done on a Roman cross counted for you. And now when you, you hear maybe Christians talk about being sinners in need of a Savior, you can say honestly and sincerely, I'm there too. I need that too. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to trust that Jesus is, and he went in my place for my sins. That's your first goal, is to believe and turn and trust in him. And all the church stuff which I'm talking about, that will come. I can assure you of that. I never thought that I'd be here standing with you talking about church membership 10 years ago. But here I am. Because God has done something in my life. And you are here, not by accident. You know that, right? You know that you are listening to a sermon on church membership for a reason. God is drawing you near. And I pray that he'd give you just a gift of repentance and faith and turn to him today. And if that is you, um, I'd be happy to talk with you. I'd be happy to talk with you. But let's go ahead and end our time in prayer. And do so because we get to pray to a God that has saved us and by his grace maybe is placing us into a family to grow in that faith. Let's pray, church. Well, Father, we want to end our time 